Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. This episode, I'm speaking to Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin, why don't you go ahead and introduce us to who you are and what you do? Oh, sure. Uh, right now, I am the Director of Communications for Decriminalized Sex Work, which is a national advocacy organization, and I am also the host of the Oldest Profession podcast. Sounds awesome. How long have you been doing your podcast? Uh, we got started in 2017. Got it. So for a minute. Yeah, about three years now. Got it. And um, how long have you been the Director of Communications? I got started in January of 2018. So... It's also been, um, you know, I've been doing that for a while. It's been about two years. Got it. What um, what were you doing before both your podcasting and, and being an advocate? Oh, yeah. I was a, um, a touring stand-up comic. So I have uh, traveled the country um, making strangers laugh. So that was my, my job before doing politics. And there are a lot of crossover skills. <laughs> uh, sure. I'm being up in front of people, pushing out your ideas. Where, uh, how yeah. long were you doing stand-up for? Again, I'm guessing short time, kind of all these things are a little short oh, time. I mean, I, yeah, it's, um, you know, people do, people do stand-up comedy for a long time without, uh, without, you know, getting paid for it. So I started doing comedy in 2011, um, and was lucky enough to, uh, you know, tour the country with the pink collar and the cake comedy tours starting in 2012. Sounds like that's fun. So you've been actually doing comedy for... About eight, nine years. What, uh, yeah. what did you go to school for? Um, I went to the College of Charleston and I majored in history. Uh, and I also, um, you know, I got a minor in theater and political science. I'm sure the theater helps being up on stage. Um, it does. <laughs> where, um, what kind of guided you from politics to comedy to being the advocate that you are? I, I seem to be ping-ponging back and forth between those things. You know, I got I got started in advocacy uh, actually when I was in middle school working for Youth Voice Raleigh, which was um, an advocacy group in Raleigh, North Carolina, made up of, you know, people under the age of 18 who didn't want parents, teachers, and politicians speaking for us. We wanted to advocate for ourselves. Um, you know, and this was in North Carolina at the height of abstinence-only sex education, um, you know, there was uh, the, the death penalty was still being applied to people under the age of 18. So we had a lot of issues that we were trying to raise awareness uh, where we felt like we were um, unheard, you know, because we were disenfranchised. Um, and that uh, quickly shapeshifted. Um, I started volunteering for uh, Planned Parenthood, actually, when I was in high school, um, you know, when I was uh, uh, getting that abstinence-only education. I remember um, one... Uh, super unhelpful instructor who came in and explained that, uh, you know, women got cervical cancer because they had too many sexual partners. No mention of a pap smear or any preventative care that could be done. Um, and this is before Gardasil was on the market. So, uh, you know, it was a, there was a lot of, a lot of scare tactics being, being used and misinformation. And so I, I volunteered for Planned Parenthood. I became a source um, at high school for, medically accurate uh, sex education and access to, you know, resources and like where the clinic was. Um, and then I continued that advocacy through college. Um, and immediately after college, my first job was actually with uh, grassroots campaigns, which, um, you know, I don't, 
Uh, I, you know, when you go into the city and you see folks that are, you know, standing on the street corner, it's like, hey, do you have a minute for the ACLU? Um, I was their boss in 12 cities. That was my first job out of college. Um, and I lasted for two years uh, before, yeah, the, the 2010 election campaign, um, I, I got burnt out uh quickly uh, which is what happens when you work 120 hours a week um <laughs> so yeah you can't change the world in one year it's a, it's a marathon not a race guys calm down <laughs> so i i burnt out and got that's when i got into stand-up comedy um is going through kind of a nihilistic phase <laughs> but you know i uh you know and and stand-up comedy really gave me i'm, I'm glad that i made that transition you know it's um it, it's it's really it's helped me understand the power of storytelling from from multiple angles. Um, I think you you lose something when you uh, when you're only doing storytelling as a fundraiser. Um, but it, you know, it, and it also helped me come out as a sex worker. You know, it was in my capacity as a stand-up comedian that I started telling my story. Um, you know, about doing escort work when I was in high school, and you know, sugaring later to support myself as a stand-up comic and uh, you know, able to delve into the complexities of all of that, which I don't think I would have done had I been representing um, a progressive organization. I think the cost would have been too high for me. You know, if, for example, if I was still working at Planned Parenthood, for me to come out as a sex worker, I think would have been a liability for the organization. So I'm glad that I took the path that I took, but it has certainly been a chaotic one. Lots to unpack there. So you... <laughs> You've been advocating for things and, and being pretty outspoken, bucking the system for quite a long time. Um, why do you think it would be such a, I guess, a negative impact on, on Planned Parenthood for you being a former sex worker? You know, I think that they, you know, Planned Parenthood tries to fight a lot of fights at the same time, you know, because on the one hand, they're an advocacy organization. But on the other hand, they're, you know, an active national network of clinics that serve patients every day. And so they're not able to take, you know, as many political risks in the name of their advocacy if those risks might put, uh, you know, the, the operation, the day to day operations of their, of their clinics in jeopardy. And so I think for me to, to stand up and, and say, take a, a controversial position of, you know, being an out and proud uh, sex worker is just not, that's not the fight that Planned Parenthood has signed up for. They provide services to sex workers all day. They are a non-judgmental, uh, you know, provider of health care, um, you know, and they're, they're a pro-choice organization and a, a strong advocate for reproductive justice. Um but, you know, the the ACORN takedown video from several years before, you know, there, there's a lot of bad actors, I think, that would try to twist that message into, you know, Planned Parenthood promoting prostitution, which is like, you know, not accurate uh, and certainly not the brand they're trying to build. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I think um, mm -hmm. because it's still stigmatized, uh, sex work is still stigmatized. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a good good idea to kind of keep things separate. What um yeah. what was your I guess primary purpose or decision that prompted you into becoming a sex worker? You know, I am I am one of those I don't know if that I'm wired weird 
or, uh, you know, I feel like I am, I am a natural born contrarian. So I became a sex worker because people told me that I couldn't do that. Uh, you know, very similar reasoning, I think, behind, you know, becoming a, a stand-up comic. And I, I've made a lot of decisions in my life, actually, that were driven by spite uh, and revenge because I am my father's daughter. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was 17 years old. Um, you know, I am the only child of a, an upper-middle-class family. I had all of my material needs met, uh, a generous allowance. But... You know, I, I grew up in the American South, as I, as I said before, at the height of this, like, abstinence-only sex education that was very deeply shaming, I think, to people generally, but women specifically. You know, I remember really getting this message in high school that, you know, the, the sex that I chose to engage in or sex that was done to me, uh, as it was sort of framed um, in, my, in my high school, would devalue my body in some way. Um, I remember one uh, one teacher actually took a glue stick uh, and put, you know, glue all over one piece of paper and then stuck it to another piece of paper and pulled it apart and was like, this is what happens to your body when you have sex with someone. You leave pieces of yourself all over them that you'll never get back. And I was, you know, and it, it, it's just this, this very shame-oriented way of, of thinking about sex. And so, um, you know, and I was a young radical at the time, and I just wholly rejected that message. And so engaging in sex work felt in some way like a way for me to empirically engage with this bad idea, you know. And, and I think I remember uh, when I, I came out to my family years and years later after, uh, you know, talking about it on stage at that point for, for a long time, um, you know, my mother confronted me and she said, uh, I can't believe you sold your body. And I was like, I didn't. I still have it, uh, which is still my position, um, you know, about about sex work and the way that we think about sexual shame and the way that it limits um, you know, the, the freedom of movement and freedom of expression, um, especially of, of our young women. You know, we, we really are attached to this idea as a culture that little boys go out into the world and experience hardship and become stronger better men and that little girls go out into the world and become damaged or devalued in some way and i think that you know that is that is not true and both of those beliefs do a lot of damage to you know children of all gender i i agree i think that and i've always struggled with the that duality and the hypocrisy of guys mm -hmm. can be praised for you know going out and doing whatever they do and women, yep. girls are always seem to be, you know, devalued, which is for doing yep. the same things, which is just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And what I will tell you is that you can't slut shame a whore. So I win. <laughs> hey, if your mindset's in the right spot, it's hard, it's hard to be offended. <laughs> um, so kind of sticking on the vein of, of what you're advocating for and, and the work you're doing at the moment, mm -hmm. what are, what are your thoughts on some of the arguments for keeping it? criminalize and not legalizing it and keeping it as stigmatized. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's important to understand that there are, there are four basic legal models when it comes to the oldest profession, right? There's uh, the full criminalization, which is where is, which is what we have in most of the United States, uh, which is where both buying and selling is criminalized in practice. Uh, that mostly means that, 
sellers are criminalized. You know, this is where you see massage parlor stings. This is where you see, uh, you know, John stings are a result of this. Um, you know, where you have law enforcement essentially like LARPing um, online as either uh, providers or um, uh, or clients who are trying to sort of entrap uh, each other into, you know, engaging um, in in consensual sex work. Uh, and you know, this is where the surveillance culture and uh, you know, this is what we think of when we think about the criminal model of prostitution, that both the buyer and the seller is engaged um, in criminal activity. You have partial criminalization, which is um, you know, a new model, um, sometimes referred to as the Nordic model or in demand or the entrapment model. Um, and this is where selling sex is not illegal, but everything around selling sex is illegal, um, more specifically clients and third parties, right? Whether you're talking about uh, roommates or landlords or managers or boyfriends um, or the clients of sex workers. And this is often promoted as a feminist model, even though everywhere it's been implemented results in more violence against women. And, and we can get into that in a second. Um, there's also a uh, legalization this is what we see in nevada and amsterdam um this is where uh you know sex work is a tightly regulated industry so for example in nevada in order to work as a legal prostitute you have to register with the sheriff's department uh you have to be hired uh, by a brothel you have to work within the confines of that brothel uh you're subjected to bi-weekly uh SCI tests that you have to pay for yourself and those records become publicly available, making you a secondary uh you know, second class citizen um in a lot of respects. And all of that information, uh the fact that you are a legally registered sex worker and your SCI history becomes subpoenable, which I'm sure you can imagine that has uh, you know, just terrible impacts on like child custody cases, um, in addition to a lot of other civic issues here in the US. Um, so that is not an, a model that we advocate for, even though it sounds like a good idea, the legalization um, of prostitution. And, of course, the, the model that we advocate for is the full decriminalization of adult consensual prostitution. And the, the basis of this model is essentially that if two adults are engaging in consensual sexual relations with each other, that shouldn't be a crime, whether money is exchanged or not. Got it. Um, so part of the, uh, I guess one of the arguments that I've seen with or heard rather and, and seen on Twitter recently, um, because the idea of normalizing and legalizing and decriminalizing, uh, sex work is kind of becoming more and more prevalent. Um, what are your thoughts on the argument that men might think, or even women might think that there's a, a mutual inclusivity between being in an open relationship and uh, legalizing sex work. And I think to maybe clarify that is if you have a husband and wife, the husband doesn't seem to care, you know, what his wife is doing as long as, you know, that relationship is secure. Um, mm -hmm. The woman goes out and, you know, to make some extra money, she decides to, to get into sex work. Do you think that there's a mutual inclusivity with open relationships or that people that engage in sex work would have to be monogamous or cannot be monogamous, I, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% I'm not positive I understand the question, but what I, what I will say is that like all kinds of people um, with all kinds of beliefs and personal relationships and boundaries 
engage in sex work, right? Both as both as um, clients and as providers. So, you know, I certainly know that I think that there's a lot of philosophical crossover between, uh, you know, the the poly community and their, you know, their belief in, um, you know, open relationships are really like, you know, the, the radical bodily autonomy of, you know, each individual person being able to negotiate, uh, you know, their, their own sexual boundaries um, with the people that they're in relationship in rather than, you know, just sort of uh, going along with the, you know, dominant society's belief about the kind of sex that they should be having and the reasons that they should be engaging in that. You know, so I think, you know, folks that are that are involved in the poly community or are in open relationships, I think are, are philosophically inclined to understand why the decriminalization of adult consensual prostitution is a good idea. I don't think that anyone can make uh, big, broad statements about the kinds of people who engage in sex work. You know, I think you know, there are folks that are in monogamous relationships right now that engage in sex work both as buyers and sellers. You know, as a uh, as a provider, I will tell you that I have lots and lots of clients that were in strictly monogamous relationships, which is why they were going to a sex worker and right. not pursuing. Uh, and then I will also tell you that there were providers, you know, other women that I was in community with who also maintained that they were in a strictly monogamous relationship and either their partner didn't view the work that they, uh, you know, the sex that they were having as a part of their job um, as a violation of that, or they had to keep those relationships hidden, which made them, you know, more vulnerable uh, to abuse in many cases. And, and uh, you know, I certainly have seen some boyfriends of sex workers uh, not take uh, the news of them coming out well. You know, sex workers will often live a double life or live in secrecy because of the shame and stigma attached to it, even with their closest friends and family. Um, and also, I've seen folks in, you know, celebrated polyamorous relationships that engage the services of the sex work or provide sex work themselves. It's just all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. And that's, that's humanity. I mean... Right. Everybody doing as long as it's consensual and everything's agreed upon. I, I don't see why we've got to have it legalized. I mean, it was legal up until the early 1900s, if I recall correctly. Based yeah, of- I mean, we yeah we we um, criminalized prostitution at the same time that we criminalized abortion and alcohol. You know, the their, the crackdown on vice and the moralization of our the American legal code is, you know, all a part of the, the so-called progressive era. You know, and I think that it, you know, you can make a lot of direct ties between the criminalization of vice um, and the the expansion of our, our criminal justice system. You know, and we're the freest country on earth, but we incarcerate more people per capita than any other developed nation in the world it's you know it's bananas yeah um and you know this insistence that we must stick our nose into other people's business is, is a part of it you know but what what is true about the war on drugs um is also true about the war on sex i i, and, I can see that and and i think it's when you look at the cost that, that goes into the war on drugs i mean we're 40 years into the over 40 years into this and over a trillion dollars yeah. worth of money spent but when you look at, and I'm pretty sure it's the same thing with sex work, the amount of money that the government, quote unquote, recover for charging somebody, when you look at how much time goes into it for the officers, how much time goes into it on a court level, 
how much time goes it on the judge, and then the fact that they're only able to recover, you know, a few thousand dollars in fines, and all the money that's right. expended, it, it it doesn't level out. So I'm I'm kind of on the, right. the side of from that aspect that it should be legalized for the purposes that it's a waste of money. You can't recover the amount of money that you're putting into charging these people, whether they're Johns right. or sex workers. I mean, and and even if you are, then you are that is at best pimping by the state right i mean we we see this a lot where you know somebody will be arrested for prostitution and then they have to engage in prostitution in order to pay their court fines uh you know it's you know which makes them more vulnerable to exploitation more vulnerable to violence and less likely to be able to get work outside of the sex industry and so I, i you know similarly to the war on drugs i just feel like you know, the, the kind of um, policing that we're engaging in on this issue is just not leading to and can't lead to good outcomes. This is just one of those problems that you can't arrest your way out of. With the organization that you're with, are, is there any concern of, if it were to become legalized, of overregulation? You know, kind of the things that you pointed out before that go on with Nevada? Yeah, yeah, we are concerned. You know, we, we call ourselves uh, decriminalized sex work for a reason. And I think that you know, there, there are a lot of uh, folks that look at Nevada as a potential worst-case scenario for good reason. You know, Nevada is the only state in the union with legal, regulated prostitution, and it has the highest arrest rate per capita for prostitution, uh, you know, which seems like it, it doesn't make sense until you look at the details. You know, the only way to work legally in Nevada is to do so, um, you know, in a, in a, in a rural brothel. Um, and there are a lot of people who are engaged in sex work because they don't want to work for other people, um, you know, let alone uh, for for somebody like that. Um, uh, his name is escaping me, but, that, you know, reality star, uh, douchebag. Uh, That's a lot of people. In the middle of <laughs> There's yeah, a lot of people yeah, there. Yeah, it doesn't narrow it down. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure listeners will know who I'm talking about. But, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, so it the, the Nevada system essentially sort of entrenched legalization is a, is a legal model that only benefits brothel owners. It doesn't reduce exploitation um, or violence in the sex trade. It doesn't, uh, it, 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 it's something that like neither clients nor sex workers are asking for. Um, and it forces people into this really narrow model, which is just not how humans work. And it's certainly not how human sexuality works. I think the, the best analogy here is it actually to, um, to the gay rights movement. Um, you know, it's it's not like when uh, we it's not like when we legalized uh, well we didn't legalize but it, it's not like when we stopped arresting people for being gay that we forced adults to like engage their local bureaucrat to get like a gay sex license and you know get parental permission and fill out a bunch of forms. We just stopped arresting people for engaging in consensual sex. Under your organization's idea, what? How would they prefer things operate? Should it be decriminalized? I mean, like, what kind of parameters and and what would be the? I think the best the best model um, that we've seen so far is what they do in New Zealand, right? Where you know, sole proprietors, people who are working independently, don't have to apply for a license, don't have to engage in any paperwork at all, and what they're doing, no matter no matter what, if they're working, you know, by themselves, they're not committing a crime, which means if they are raped or robbed or, 
witness a crime, they're always able to go to law enforcement and tell the truth about the sex work that they're engaged in. And that doesn't diminish uh, them as, as victims in the, in the eyes of the law, uh, which is great. Um, and it also, you know, means that that clients who, you know, suspect foul play are also able to go to the police um, if they are robbed or if they suspect violence and or, or exploitation. There's no admission of a crime, even if people don't have their paperwork up to date. But if more than three people, um, so four or more, are working together, then, you know, sex workers in New Zealand have to apply for a small business license. And all of the rules and regulations around small businesses, mostly around worker protections um, and pay scales, uh, apply. They have to, I think, post information about STIs. Uh, there's also a great system in New Zealand where, um, you know, they, they really incentivize uh, safer sex practices, um, not through criminal penalties, but rather fines that actually empower the sex worker. So if you want to engage in risky activity in New Zealand, then you face a potential like $2,000 fine. So a client that suggests, you know, unprotected sex, for example, with a sex worker, she can say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is a trap or, or what. So why don't you just go ahead and give me the $2,000 and then we can have that conversation, which, <laughs> um, you know, STI rates have plummeted in New Zealand. Um, just through that in a way that we don't see that when criminal penalties um, or forced mandatory STI testing is imposed on a community, which only pushes uh, that kind of behavior underground or further underground. Got it. So I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you. You're, sure. you're sitting in front of the Supreme Court of the United States with a pitch to decriminalize. What, did, what would your best pitch to the justices be? I think that sex workers and their communities would be best served by framing adult consensual sex work under the LGBTI umbrella, right? So when the Supreme Court decided that two consensual adults engaged in sodomy in the privacy of their own home weren't violating any laws back, I think it was, was 2002 when this happened, um, then I would make the argument that sex workers um, who are who are operating um, in private are protected under under that that same decision. So I would point to precedent and say, you know, consensual adults are allowed to engage in sexual behavior that makes other adults uncomfortable without being in violation of the law. And that's what sex workers and their clients are doing, whether money is exchanged or not. Got it. I, I mean, it's it seems like a logical <laughs> argument for that. Um, that's yeah. Go, I mean, I'd have to go to law school for a lot of things would have to be different for me to be talking to the Supreme right, Court. Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I hope to see that case made, uh, one of these days. So let's jump forward a little bit or back a little bit to your, your podcast. Um, I've, mm -hmm. I've listened to a handful of episodes. I think it's, it's quite fascinating. Where oh, do you, you. <laughs> where do you, um, you typically get your content? I mean, I don't recall finding the history of harlots in the library. Oh, sure. You'd be surprised, actually. There have been a lot of excellent books written by, um, you know, historians on, uh, you know, the history of individual sex workers and the history of sex work. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've been obsessed with this stuff now for almost a decade, and I will tell you that my library just keeps growing. Uh, but the first two seasons of the Oldest Profession podcast were really self-driven. You know, I was just 
you know, reading about sex workers that I was organically interested in and then, you know, trying to share that information on the podcast. Uh, you know, um, occasionally we would get uh, suggestions from listeners, which I, I always appreciate and love. Um, but for season three, which uh, is coming out in the first week of September, uh, we actually were, were able to hire Dr. Charlene Fletcher, who is a Ph.D. historian um, of, you know, American uh, Southern 19th century history. And she, she's been incredible. You know, as a, as a professional historian, we've mapped out uh, the first half of the season. She's putting together annotated bibliographies that we're sharing with our listeners on our website. Um, and it's just been a whole different level of research. So we are, we are taking it up a notch for season three. And I, I'm very excited. Much more production going into it. Um, yeah. Through your research, um, I, I noticed your episodes are typically a little on the shorter side, about 20 to 30 minutes. What are some of the more fascinating uh, people that you've come upon? Um, I mean, I still think, you know, one of my one of my favorite sex workers from history is Veronica Franco, who was a 16th century courtesan in um, in Venice, Italy, uh, before before Italy was a country. Um, but she's yeah, she's fascinating. Um, and I think the story, I, and in terms of, of myth, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to Ishtar, the ancient Babylonian goddess that, uh, of course, the Christian Bible calls the whore of Babylon. Um, and the, you know, the original uh, temples, temples of Ishtar and the priestess prostitutes that um, engaged in, um, in sacred sex. Uh, you know, and I think that that is a history that is still with us, but in kind of a muted and hidden way. But there is, I don't know, there's something magic, I think, about about sex work and the underground and the the space between um, that sex workers have always existed in. I think you know, humanity has always been deeply rooted in one way or another in sex yep. and, and whether you look at women as being concubines or you know, the demonology of the succubus and the, the praise of the harems and things like that. The, yeah. This, these images have been, um, you know, some would say uh, bastardized or, or corrupted by, by the Christian church, but they haven't been wholly erased, you know, characters like Lilith, who of course becomes, you know, the medieval succubus, um, you know, even in some respects, what we did to Eve, Mary Magdalene is another character, um, you know, sort of the, the Jezebel character. It's like the, the Holy Bible is full of, uh, you know, transformative um, women that exist outside of the, the sexual respectability that the, the patriarchal church was really pushing. And I think it's so interesting, you know, looking at the history of the Christian church, Mary Magdalene is, you know, I think... I think there's no pushback in calling her the most influential early Christian preacher, right? Like we don't have a Christian faith without um, the the missionary um, prophesizing of Mary Magdalene, who is, you know, one of the early spreaders of the Christian faith, but she is denigrated um, and called a whore by, you know, some of our first priests specifically as an effort to justify a church that would not allow women uh, to be ministers, to be preachers within the faith that wouldn't have existed without a woman preacher. You know, and I think that that just sums up so much of our relationship 
um, to, to sacred sex and to sex workers and why we've always been such a, a rich symbol for so much of society's anxieties, um, even as we are actively erased. It's, it's funny that you know, some of the points that you're making that, that women are, are always turned into the villain in a lot of the stories in the Bibles and throughout history, they've always been extremely influential to the more influential men. And I think that the way that women have always been pushed aside and kind of seen but not heard, it's right. it's frustrating. And when you, for me to look at things from trying to you know, the objective perspective, to see how women are, are still pushed aside and, and you know, mm-hmm. oh, you coddled and, and trying to find the right words to, to articulate this right way. Um, well, you, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this, public, uh, you know, public woman is an old euphemism for prostitute because only women with no virtue to lose could fully participate in public life. And, you know, we've seen several, several phases of this in the 19th century is, um, you know, when this, this becomes, um, you know, kind of, uh, it's most obvious with the, uh, you know, the Victorian womanhood ideal uh, and this. Um, you know, sort of fetishization of the the weakness of of, of uh, upper class ladies uh, who are definitely to be seen, not heard. But any venture into public life is a reputational risk that some women are unwilling and unable to take. But sex workers who are not protecting their virtue have been able to access and engage in public spaces and public conversations in a way that women who are protecting their virtue have historically not been able to. And we're seeing that now with this, you know, this trend of, of calling public women, you know, nasty or, or whores. You know, that was a, a real radicalizing moment for me when Donald Trump called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman, and now he's doing it again to Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, he is trying to denigrate them by, by you know, hearkening back and triggering this very old idea that women that engage in, in public life are unseemly in some way, right? That, that have no virtue. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it's frustrating. These are old stories. These are pervasive stories. But I think that, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to really tackle misogyny, we have to first tackle corphobia. Understandable. And if you eliminate the, that particular phobia, you at least hopefully stop the, the villainizing and the demonizing of women who enjoy sex. There's nothing wrong with enjoying right. sex. And the fact that, like I kind of said earlier, men have always been praised for the amount that they have and women are always demonized. Yeah. So yep. uh, pushing for that is, you know, truly creating that equality that everybody's pushing for right now. And Trump's kind of methodology of, I mean, that's how he deals with everything. He, he just, he's a horrible human being. Or on so many levels. Right. Um, well, there's also a personification, right, of so much. Uh, you know, it's, it, yeah, he, he, I mean, he's a, per, he's a personification of, of, of the patriarchy. You know, it's, you know, here's, here's a man who's, um, you know, divorced three times, um, engaged in all kinds of nefarious sexual behavior, is sort of a celebrated uh, you know, rapist um, and like a soldier of women. Um, who has the audacity to call, uh, you know, his, his women rivals 
nasty, you know, and I think it's, it's a game of projection that men in power have been getting away with for a long time. We're actually starting the, um, the third season of the, the old profession with a three-part series on Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to run for president. Um, and she was a sex worker. She was back in the early 1900s, right? Uh, 1870. 1870. So, Even yep. further. And she ran in the 1872 elections. She announced her candidacy in 1870. And that's when it was still theoretically legal. The, the um, yeah, and prostitution. It wasn't. It wasn't criminalized. Well, it, it, it's hard to talk about. You know. You know, prostitution isn't criminalized until the early nineteen teens, right? We start to see um, the first federal law is nineteen ten, known as the the White Slave Law, otherwise known as the Man Act, uh, which made it a crime to transport women across straight lines for immoral purposes. This is sort of known as our first anti-trafficking law, but of course, it's used to prosecute chorus girls and people engaged in extramarital affairs and really used to prosecute uh, interracial relationships because, um, you know, women engaged in, uh, you know, having sex across the color line was considered immoral whether money was exchanged or, or not. not. Um, right, yeah. And, and you know, that isn't reversed until Loving versus Virginia, which happens in the 1960s. So those, those laws are on the books for a really long time um, and used to sort of enforce uh, racism more than it's used to crack down on on vice. But the brothels get shut down, you know, in San Francisco. That happens, um, you know, in February of 1917. Uh, different cities and different states close their brothels at different times, but it all sort of happens in a wave in the early 19-teens. And so prostitution is not criminalized before this time, but also women don't have a whole lot of rights. So it's not it's not a utopia. Right. Uh, for sex workers or any lady, for that matter. Uh, but yes, it is legal uh, for for women to engage in sex work. But you know, married women can't own property, so you know it's 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 not it's hard. Well, across the board, with a lot of the mainstream religions, women are always been seen as property. So I mean, you go back to that pre-vice legal illegalization of prostitution and. It kind of makes sense. They 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 were treated as property, so it sounds like it wasn't really frowned upon. It was kind of just like you do what you do, and we'll figure out a way to deal with it. Until they went hardcore with, you know, pushing to legalize it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's fair and accurate. So, to your podcast again, you've got a much bigger production company with it. Um, Yep. People. Old Pro Productions. So it's a it is an actual production company. Is there anything outside of podcasts you are doing with that or is it just for your podcasts and, and other types of We yeah, we are we're starting with season three um, of the oldest profession podcast of our, our first uh, project. We are working in coalition with um, you know, sex worker advocates across the country to put together um, a public art project to celebrate this public history um, January twenty fifth. But all of that is through the Oldest Profession podcast. Um, in terms of the production company, you know, we have ambitions to make documentaries, um, to make short films. Um, I have a, a one-woman show, Forth I View, um, that is ready to tour. And so we'll be, we'll be doing that through the production company once it's safe for people to gather again. But I think, you know, during, during the coronavirus, uh, while we're all in isolation, I think we're going to stay pretty focused on the podcast. Got it. And it gives you time to, to 
really dive into some of the research that you're doing. What are some of the benefits to decriminalizing sex work? I mean, I think the, the biggest and most obvious benefit to decriminalizing sex work is the marked reduction in violence against women. Um, you know, everywhere where we have seen sex work, you know, everywhere that we've seen um, that makes it easier for sex workers to connect directly with their clients reduces reported cases of rape, uh, the female homicide rate, and violence and exploitation within the sex trade. Uh, you know, there's an excellent study that compares uh, Craigslist erotic services across U.S. cities um, at different times. And they found that on average, when Craigslist erotic services was introduced to a new area, the, um, the female homicide rate dropped on average 17%, which I think is just incredible. You know, New Zealand, which fully decriminalized adult consensual prostitution in 2003, has almost eliminated uh, violence and exploitation within the sex trade. There's actually, there's a story out of New Zealand that I think captures so much of what's possible in terms of a paradigm shift between the relationship that sex workers have to law enforcement. Um, a few years ago, there was a, a young woman who was engaged in, you know, perfectly legal sex work in New Zealand, and she had an appointment with a client. Uh, and after that appointment, the client refused to pay her. And so she called the police. And, you know, a police officer called this client and said, hey, dude, are you going to pay this young lady for services rendered? Or do you want us to come pick you up? Because that's a that's a crime. And, like, you know, hearing that story, I wanted to shout from the rooftops of like, this is the future sex workers want. <laughs> you know, we want, um, you know, there to be community resources available for us to, um, you know, enforce, enforce boundaries. If you, um, you know, we want the kind of social service uh, net that yeah, that's available in places like New Zealand. You know, I, I hear, um, you know, anti-trafficking advocates um, all day who are trying so hard, uh, you know, to use the criminal justice system to crack down on the quote unquote, like the bad guys. But what we really need is more support for victims. You know, if you want to reduce the number of people who are engaged in sex work out of desperation, build more domestic violence shelters, support in more subsidies for childcare, create universal, uh, you know, universal public health care. Uh, you know, there are so many ways to reduce desperation and the kinds of financial, um, sorry, the kinds of financial emergencies that drive people to engage in sex work from a place of desperation. Um, and there are real solutions to those problems. Um, but arresting uh, adults for engaging in consensual adult sex work doesn't help anyone. You're only, you know, driving more people into crisis. And in a lot of cases, creating more victims. Exactly. And to use the example of the, the story you just gave, you know, that typically would just be a, you know, you walk into a store and get your hair cut and walk out and not pay for it. It's stuff of services. Now you're adding the, the sexual assault to that if people right. do that. So it's, I think that's a, a phenomenal way that New Zealand's helping that. Is there anywhere in the United it's, States that's legalized anything along these lines on Sada, Nevada? I mean, yeah, Nevada, Nevada has it legalized there. Um, you know, adult consensual indoor adult consensual prostitution was decriminalized in Rhode Island, actually, between 2003 and 2009 in a fascinating case. It was a, you know, co combination of, um, 
sort of a, a strange combination of you know an activist um, lawsuit, uh, judicial decision, and congressional inaction um, that led to you know indoor adult consensual prostitution being you know technically decriminalized, and then with a judicial decision, it was widely recognized uh, between 2003 and 2009, um, where folks were just not being arrested. Uh, if what they were doing was behind closed doors. And what we saw when that happened was the um, rate of gonorrhea went down 30%. I'm sorry, I got my numbers wrong. The rate of gonorrhea in Rhode Island uh, dropped by 40% and reported rates in Rhode Island uh, were reduced by 30%, which again, like these are, these are persuasively positive results. Right. Um, yeah. The, uh, any idea why it, was it's no longer legal, or why it was only lasted for six years? Whether it's... in 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 two thousand nine, this woman from Brown University, Donna Hughes, who uh, has actually been written up um, several times for her uh, blatant uh, racism, um, did several studies. Uh, you know, as a as a women's and gender studies professor, um, that have since been debunked. But she really went on like a one woman crusade and, and found uh, what I've come to recognize as a unholy, uh, unholy marriage between mainstream carceral feminists uh, and right wing religious advocates. Um, you know, this is the, the alliance that brought you the porn wars of the 1980s. Well, Donna Hughes is a relic from that. And so uh, she she really went on a crusade to recriminalize prostitution in order to quote unquote save the girls. And of course, since then, we haven't saved any girls, but we certainly have charged lots of them with crimes, which I don't think anyone found especially helpful. Relic sounds like an appropriate term for her. Right. <laughs> um, the the duality and, and the legalization or the decriminalization of, of sex work, it sounds kind of like a, a win-win for a lot of things, but you're always going to have pushback regardless of what it is. I mean, we, in the world we live in now where everybody feels that their opinion is paramount to what everybody else thinks. What's the best way that you think we can destigmatize things? I mean, I think that we, you know, I, I'm biased, but, um, you know, I think miracles are possible with good storytelling. You know, I think that, the game changer for the LGBT movement was uh, that more folks came out, you know, and I, I think that it's easy for people to believe that they don't know any sex workers when they, you know, the sex workers they know aren't out. And so I feel like transformative change is possible when, uh, when people share their experiences with their own community. Um, and I know that that's not safe for everyone to do and that I, I come from an incredibly privileged place you know I, I tell a joke on stage that you know I, I'm an only child so I told my parents you know like get on board with my four choices or be alone for Christmas you know and that's, that's a lot of power okay. but um, you know I, I do think that it is our responsibility um, as storytellers and as advocates um, to honor each other's stories you know and I think that that coming out and reminding people in our social circles and in our families um, and on podcasts like this, um, you know, that, that I engage in, in sex work and that all kinds of people engage in sex work. The more sex workers you know, the harder it is to hold on to your false ideas about what it means to engage in this work. I think you, you hit a key phrase there, false ideas. And 
I think that goes with yeah. a lot of things across the board politically. Is there, especially nowadays, there's so much misinformation, disinformation, and just confirmation bias. It's, it's hard for people to to find the truth in anything. It's also hard for them to see the world from a more broader perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So I think what you guys are doing, it's, it's trying to put the information out there, good information out there for people to be able to digest that they're, you know, their leisure, so to speak, you know, and see that you know, women are doing what they want to do, what they should be allowed to do with their bodies. Is like you said, as long as it's consensual. And I think one of the aspects that I'm picking up from what you're telling me is you're creating a world of, of less victims and, and giving I, women I power. I think that's true. And I think that's an important distinction to make. You know, I think that women like Donna Hughes do other women a disservice by denying um, our agency and our, you know, our right to own our own stories. When you tell me that every act of prostitution is an act of paid rape, then you take away my ability to tell you when I've been raped, when I've been violated. You know, if we create a society that does not allow uh, people to say yes, then you're contributing to a society that doesn't allow people to say no. And so in a world where adult consensual prostitution is decriminalized, it's easier to find and identify actual predators because we're not lumping them in with the majority of clients who, you know, are, are perfectly nice people who are hoping to pay another adult for a service they offer. There's a lot of reasons why guys or women would go to a sex worker. I mean, you, some mm-hmm. people just don't want to be to settle down into a relationship and they want the freedom to do what they want when they want. And it just makes sense. Like you said, the, I think the key word is consensualizing and, and people don't, yeah. you know, when they're they're they have these preconceived notions of, of what is just and right and moral. I mean, I think moral is a interesting word that, is always thrown out there as, oh, well, this is immoral, this is immoral. And that's, I think, a very yeah, I mean, much on personal perspective. I Yeah, I mean, my my understanding of morality is not hurting other people, you know, and I think that's, that's important. It's, uh, you know, first first do no harm. You know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like if your morality is uh, putting people in handcuffs and cages and saddling them uh, with a lifelong scarlet letter um, because they, you know, they had sex that you didn't like, then I would ask you who, who you're helping or who is that for? Um, and, you know, and, and for, you know, my Christian listeners, uh, you know, Jesus spent a lot of time with sex workers, um, you know, and I, he doesn't condone that behavior, but he doesn't condemn it either. And I think that's what the criminalization of sex work really is, is, is punishment, um, you know, outside of, uh, outside of compassion. I, I agree with that. I think that I'm, I'm a big prescriber of the idea and notion of, you know, never judge anybody until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And especially nowadays, given the pandemic and, and how hard life is for everybody in general, you know, I, I try really hard not to judge people until they give me something to really judge them on and just an outward appearance or a simple action. I was a police officer for some time and, and dealing with some people. You know, I've had one guy flat out say, you're not an asshole. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, am, <laughs> I spo- am I supposed to be? And I was yeah, in the right. process of, of processing him for, you know, an arrest. And 
we were just having a good time sitting there talking and he just out of the blues like you're not an asshole I'm like well what do you mean oh well you know other cops are they're they're you know assholes they're they're mean they, they you know they're, they're really gruff about it i'm like well have you given me a reason to disrespect you have you disrespected me yet he's like right. well, no i'm like so it's common courtesy it's just being who you yeah. are and and treating everybody equally until they give you a reason but to, i mean I'm sure as a police officer, you, you saw the, I mean, it's easy to slip into an us versus them mentality, you know? And I think that that is, that is something that the way that, um, you know, policies and the, the carceral system that we've built has sort of created and encouraged, um, you know, a soldier's mentality among police officers, even when they're policing, you know, communities that they're a part of. I, I agree, and, and I can see that. And, and there is certain aspects mm -hmm. of, of the militarization, so to speak, of law enforcement, at least the way we're trained um, and, and how we're on. But I think part of this adversarial relationship that we have, and I say we as being a retired police officer, that we have with society and, and, and civilians, quote-unquote, is mm -hmm. has more to do with the laws than it does with the officers themselves. I, I think some of the, the anger and ire that's currently, mm -hmm. you know, steaming through the the United States has more to do with the police being a tool of the system. And I think the, yep. the anger is a little more misplaced. And if you really want to find yeah. somebody to be angry with, find the people that, that made some of these archaic laws and refuse to change them to, to really better society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the decriminalization of sex work is, is one example of a concrete policy change that could really go a long way to improving the relationship between uh, you know, police officers um, and the communities that they police. You know, if, if sex workers, uh, if we're no longer picking up people for loitering for the purposes of prostitution, if we're no longer arresting people for engaging in adult consensual um, sex work, then that frees up law enforcement resources to, you know, actively investigate reported crimes like rape and sexual assault. Um, or, you know, petty theft, or, you know, it, it's shocking to me. The real the victim crimes. Of, yeah, like, it's shocking to me how much money there is available for widespread surveillance. Like, you know, I, I know that you're, you live in New Jersey, but, you know, looking, I, I really dug into the, the Robert Kraft um, arrest from, you know, I, I think it was <laughs> a year and a half ago now. That's and, like, cool. we're talking about five different agencies you know, I think it was like three local police departments, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security spent six months, six months, uh, you know, it, they installed hidden cameras in these like legally licensed businesses, watching, uh, you know, illicit massages happen behind closed doors, just a number of man hours and resources that went behind, you know, harassing small businesses that were a worst case scenario in engaged in consensual acts of adult prostitution. Like the youngest person that they apprehended was 30 years old. Everyone involved was a legally licensed masseur. Um, and in fact, it's really funny because like the, um, I think it was like the uh, Orchids of Asia spa specifically, their Yelp reviews were filled with men who were expecting to receive a happy ending and then didn't. And then didn't. So like there was a lot of like there's a lot of just like regular massages that were happening on the present um you know on the premises in addition to uh you know the occasional hand job or sometimes like a blow job. Oh by the way, the um 
they there were four different agencies that threw themselves press conferences and they all said like illegal sex acts because uh, nobody gets into a moral panic over a hand job. Nobody should be put in handcuffs uh, <laughs> over a hand job. That's my that's my position. But you know, it, it, there were there were so many resources. And, you know, I I personally have been in the position of um, you know I reported a sexual assault that happened to me in college and. You know, I got the impression, and I know that I am not alone in this, that the investigator just didn't want to pursue. You know, he was very, very quick in our very first meeting said, you know, this is a he said, she said situation. And I was like, you don't, how do you know that? Like, you, I, I told you about evidence. There's a broken vase, right? Talk to this guy. Like, you know, it, 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 was, it, it was very, very frustrating, um, the, uh, the difference. In um, in resources and how and how we allocate them um, to investigate essentially victimless crimes. And I know that you've seen this with with the drug war as well. You know, a lot of uh, a lot goes into arresting folks for having a bag of weed, but you know, nobody wanted to read the text messages that were evidence of sexual assault. Right, and that, you know, with the the touch on the war on drugs, you you, you were arresting kids, and and I call them kids at eighteen, nineteen years old. Yeah for nickel bags, dime bags of weed and sticks yeah. with them for the rest of their life. So now you're kind of putting the, you know, you're already putting a check mark in a bad spot for them. And it's the same thing. You're, you're creating victims out of, out of prostitutes. that's unnecessary. And again, it goes back yeah. to, to making women uh, property over people. The, yep. the perspective of dismissive and, you know, victimizing victims. And granted you have, the human nature component to it where people want everything for their own specific reasons. But by and large to dismiss a, a victim of rape because she was engaged in what was initially a consensual act that became yep. non-consensual because as far as I'm concerned, it's consensual until the woman says no. And when she says no, that's it. doesn't matter how close you yep. are. doesn't matter where you are in the, in the scheme of things. She says no, it stops. And you know, the, I think we've seen, quite too often in the last few years of the dismissiveness and really, mm-hmm. you know, the, the re-victimization of some of these girls that have been violated and the judges, you know, let people off with no, no jail time or, right. you know, slaps on the wrist. It's, it's, it's kind of disgusting to see what some of these judges have done. And again, it, it the woman was already victimized, something she's going to live with for the rest of her life. And now to know that, she went about things the way that she was supposed to. She reported it. It was investigated. Yep. It was prosecuted and adjudicated. And basically the judge laughs in her face. Right. Right. And I think it all comes down to, you know, what we were talking about in the beginning and the way that we sort of conceive of men and women's bodies. And, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, women are not, fully autonomous sexual beings, that their bodies are community, whether they are, you know, public women and sex workers and therefore cannot be violated because, uh, you know, we think of them as being public property or whether they are private property and the real crime is the, the property crime against a man, right? Whether it be, you know, the father or the husband or the partner or whatever, um, of an individual woman. And so, you know, when we live in a society that doesn't recognize women as, um, or people really as 
being fully autonomous over their own body and being able to, to have self-determination in terms of the, the kinds of sex that they engage in and the reasons behind that, then we're going, we're going to live in a rape culture. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I think that we, we really see this with, um, you know, with, with the first anti-prostitution, with the first federal um, anti-prostitution law, you know, the white slave law made it a crime to transport women for immoral purposes as determined by the state. And who did we prosecute? Women who were engaged mostly in consensual interracial relationships. And we justified that by calling it rape. And that's, you know, that's, that's your, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to call it the original sin because it, it predates that by hundreds, if not thousands of years. But, you know, it, we don't have time for people who stand up and tell us they were violated but we have so much time to tell people they were violated. And that's bananas to me. And that's kind of what we have going on right now is people telling other people how they should perceive everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we touched on a little earlier, morality is, is defined differently by everybody. And until people yeah. can really start respecting other people's opinions and thoughts as opposed to downplaying it or, or feeling that their opinion is the absolute truth, we're gonna mm-hmm. have we're gonna have problems. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I've agreed. Uh, I've stolen a good chunk of your time, and I greatly appreciate you coming on and, and chatting this with me. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for chatting, and thank you so much for engaging in this conversation. And I I really want to applaud you as like as a retired police officer who's willing, uh, who's willing to have these big conversations about the way that we police the oldest profession. It's not just that. I, I think there's a lot of reforms that, that need to be done. Um, I mm-hmm. did run and probably will run again for a political position because things need to be done. We need people in, in the position to make these decisions and make these changes that really want to do it for the better of, of society, not you know to line their pockets. But uh, mm-hmm. so that's for a whole other conversation. So maybe in a few months I'll have you come back and we can we can chat about some other stuff. Like your uh, yeah, I'd your, love your to. Tour I'd love your, to come back. Your new season. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. And it's you know, I you're you're a podcast host yourself, so you understand how important it is for folks to rate and review uh, <laughs> uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please look up the Oldest Profession podcast. Yes. Uh, and give us a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. I'll make sure I throw all that into our little show notes. But definitely go on, listen to them. Go back to the last two seasons. There's some really uh, enlightening information in that. So. With that being said, I thank you again and stay safe and healthy. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.